Welcome to Rich Divine Social Work Practice Podcast. I am Rich and I am a social worker. This podcast is about practice-related issues, self-development and transformation. It will give you the knowledge, ideas and practical tools for being an effective social worker, supporting you with assessment skills, direct work, dealing with conflict and, importantly, helping you make a positive difference in the lives of children and families. So today I'm going to be talking about the term she prioritises her own needs above her children. Before I get into that, however, I've been thinking that I might have a segment of the podcast at the beginning where I provide a little bit of an update or reflect on something that's happened in work or share a piece of learning. And one of the things that's been occurring for me this week is I've had a lot of deadlines and a lot of work to do. And I've just found myself constantly projecting myself into some imaginary future where I will no longer have to have the current level of concern or the anxiety or the stress about the work that I have to do at the moment. And Eckhart Tolle, a spiritual teacher, whose book The Power of Now is probably one of the most profound books that I've read, he writes that stress is caused by being here but wanting to be there, or being in the present and wanting to be in the future. So you can think about this in a couple of ways. One is on a macro level. So to give an example, when I was a student social worker, I wanted to be a qualified social worker. When I was a qualified social worker and I was working with children in need, I wanted to be more like my experienced colleagues who were working with children on a child protection plan. Soon after I'd become a social worker and I was settled into that role, I then wanted to be a senior social worker. On a more day-to-day basis, on a micro level, if I'm working on a report due Thursday and it's only Tuesday, I want it to be Friday so I don't have to be concerned with the report. When Friday arrives, I want it to be the weekend. The problem is that when the moment I previously desired arrives, then a new situation or desire emerges. And then I found myself again caught up thinking about a moment in the future that promises finally to offer me contentment and freedom from anxiety. And so some of my stress, not all of it, but some of my stress is self-generated as a consequence of this type of thinking and derives from a dissatisfaction with the present moment. And so this week in particular, I'm finding that I'm constantly having to pull myself back into the present moment and enjoy or concentrate on what is in front of me at any given moment in time. Because otherwise, I will run the risk of wishing my life away in in the sense of wanting to be at some point in the future. <coughs> so that's my little update, my little life update. I need to get a name for the segment, for this segment. And then maybe I need to get some transition music to 
transition me into the next segment. So as you can see, this is a really well thought out and planned podcast that you're listening to rather than me just making it up as I go along. So she prioritises her own needs above her above her child's is a is a phrase that I want to reflect on. In general, I am cautious in analysing the meaning of words, statements and phrases in children's social work. Language is a fundamental uh, element in shaping our def- and defining our own experience as well as the experience of others. I worry, however, at times disproportionate attention is given to language because it is relatively easy to adjust, at least compared to the system which generates the language. In a book by Alex Fox called In a New Health and Care System, he writes, changing the language changing the language used within organisations and systems can often be a substitute for changing behaviour and beliefs, with the new, softer-sounding language adding a coat of irony to unyielding bureaucracies. To give one example, there has been attempts, and quite successful ones, at changing the language used for children in care. For example, family time has been advocated and adopted in lots of local authorities as a more preferable term than contact. Family time certainly does sound less detached and clinical than contact. However, neither terms used within common ways of talking. When a person who's not in care spends time with their family, you would never hear them say, I'm seeing my mother this afternoon for family time. Crucially, however, the term doesn't change the experience for children in care spending time with their family. The term contact or family time will mean what meaning the children attributes to the word as a result of his or her experience. And so I think that the children in care would prefer that we improve the quality of the relationships that they have with their family, as well as improve some of the settings, rather than simply change the term used to explain the time they spend with their families. With that said, some phrases are commonly used and often without much awareness that have significant implications or connotations and are deserving of attention. And I think the phrase, she prioritises her own needs above her child's needs, is one of those phrases. Now, I've used this term countless times, so I'm not therefore sitting on a pedestal and condemning those that have used the term. Rather, I'm sharing a recent, or relatively recent evolution in my thinking on this. Now, The phrase, she prioritises her own needs above her child's needs, is not that the phrase is untrue, but that it is true for everyone, irrespective of their circumstances. Every parent prioritises their own need before their child. It's quite hard to care for children unless you are psychologically adjusted and relationally supported. For some parents, however, The options available to them to tend to their own needs in order to tend to their children's needs is compromised because of domestically abusive relationships, 
unresolved psychological distress and or limited resources available to them, whether that be relationally, materially and financially. So to explain this a little further, I will explore two areas in which this term is commonly used. The first is around domestic abuse and the second is around substance misuse. To begin with domestic abuse, first of all, it's worth mentioning that there are different types of domestic abuse. However, for the purposes of today's episode, I'm going to be referring to coercive and controlling domestic abuse perpetrated by men against women. The term in question is used almost exclusively within with women in which she is alleged to place her need to be in an abusive relationship above her need to safely care for their or her child. It is now commonly understood that domestic abuse, that is controlling and coercive interpersonal behaviour, has insidious, pervasive and devastating effects on women's sense of self. The the pattern of behaviour by the perpetrator often leaves women highly fearful, hypervigilant and predisposed towards placatory behaviour as a way of avoiding and or minimising psychological or physical harm. In other words, she has to prioritise the need of the abusive partner above her own. Inadvertently, because domestic abuse is harmful to children, the claim in this scenario is that she is prioritising her need to be in a relationship, in particular an abusive relationship, above the children's need for safety. And I think, aside from placing disproportionate responsibility upon the woman for the children's safety, we have also established that she's not necessarily prioritising her need. She's prioritising the need of the controlling and coercive individual. Furthermore, some research has found that women implement strategies in the context of their abusive relationship that function to protect their children, and this would compensate for the harmful effects of domestic abuse. This, was, this is referred to in, in the literature as adaptive maternal compensatory behaviour. It was actually a topic of the dissertation I did when I was at university back in 2010. And what that basically shows is that mothers attempt to protect and mitigate against the effects of domestic abuse, often in extremely difficult circumstances and sometimes with an increased risk to themselves. And what that shows is that they prioritise the child above their self. And this can often be overlooked and instead mothers can be judged as prioritising their needs above their own, failing to protect and experience child protection services as blaming and punitive. So at the very least, I think when we're involved with children who are experiencing domestic abuse, we need to take into consideration or at least explore the possibility that although that will be harmful, the The mother, if she's in a relationship with a controlling and coercive and sometimes violent perpetrator, may also be going out of her way to shield the child from some of the effects of the domestic abuse. In the second 
is suppose scenario in which the term she prioritizes her own needs above her child's needs is around substance misuse. Now it is perhaps slightly harder to make the case that parents who misuse drugs and or alcohol are not prioritizing their needs above their children's in part because of the widespread and often implicitly embedded societal view that alcohol and or drug addiction is born out of self-determined decision-making, conscious, thought-through, albeit morally flawed desire for hedonistic pleasure. However, missing from this kind of viewpoint is the obvious and inevitable outcome of chronic drug and alcohol use, which is misery, unhappiness, poor mental and physical health, poor relationships and early death, just to name a few. You would have to be an absolute pathological sadomasochist to choose this. An alternative perspective is that drug and alcohol use is an attempt and quite an effective one in the short term of dealing with overwhelming feelings such as fear, anxiety, depression and loneliness, especially in the context of any other accessible alternative means of resolving those feelings. As pointed out by Gabor Mate, the question is never why the, why the addiction, but why the pain? So with this understanding, problematic drug and alcohol use can be reconceptualized as a solution to a deeper underlying psychological, material and environmental problem. And if it's not an unmet psychological issue, then consideration can also be given to the social context. Typically, it's, it's both. There's a book called Chasing the Screen by Johan Hari, and he, in this book, described a study by a Canadian psychologist called Dr. Bruce Alexander. And the experiment was referred to as the Rat Park experiment. And so I'll just summarise that quickly. In one study, rats were placed into a cage with water and heroin or cocaine. And the rats compulsively devoured the heroin or cocaine and eventually died. From this study, it was concluded that drugs are inherently chemically addictive and anyone who consumes them will just follow a linear unidirectional pathway to addiction. However in a subsequent study rats were placed in a cage once again with water and heroin or cocaine. This time however the rats were provided food, a hamster wheel and toys, a comfortable bed, friends and sexual mates. And in this scenario, the rats did consume drugs, but only intermittently, and none of the rats died. To further illustrate his point, Johan Ahari also referred to the Vietnam War, where 20% of American troops used heroin regularly during their duties in Vietnam. And at the time, it was anticipated that hundreds of thousands of troops were going to 
returned to America with problematic and serious drug addictions. Instead, all of the evidence indicated that the vast majority stopped using heroin once they returned home. When the troops were no longer in a dangerous and deprived social context, they were no longer compelled to use drugs to cope. It's the, it's the human equivalent, essentially, of the Rat Park experiment. And that leads Hari to conclude that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, rather the opposite of addiction is human connection. Therefore, parents are meeting their psychological and social needs through the only effective means at their disposable. Arguably, they were deceived into believing that drugs and or alcohol could remedy their difficulties drawing upon them as a self-protective coping mechanism. Subsequently, they become addicted and in some cases incapable of reducing or abstaining despite the obvious and deleterious effects on a whole host of secondary problems unconnected to the original problem that they are attempting to resolve. In a book called Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, a neuroscientist and former drug addict Mark Lewis writes that addiction is an attempted shortcut to get more of what you need by condensing what you need into a single monolithic symbol. The drug, or other substances, stands for a cluster of needs, needs for warmth, safety, freedom and self-sufficiency. So to bring this to a conclusion... Over half a century ago, John Bowlby, in quite a famous quote now, wrote, Just as children are absolutely dependent on their parents for sustenance, so in all but the most primitive communities are parents, dependent on a greater society. If a community values its children, it must cherish their parents. And Bowlby understood that for a parent to care for their child they need to be cared for themselves economically, practically and emotionally. In other words they need to be cherished. When we claim that a parent is prioritising their own need above their child we cast a kind of moral condemnatory stance that implicitly assigns conscious intent and agency. When we recognise, however, that they are attempting, or more accurately, I think, being compelled to deal with dangerous relationships and often, and or unresolved psychological distress, often in the context of deprivation and relational impoverishment, then we can reframe the issue and hopefully from this develop a more ethical and meaningful set of interventions. Patricia Crittenden, who was heavily influenced by Bowlby, suggests that to help parents, this is her quote, not mine, my words, to help parents, we need to understand them as people who have children, as opposed to seeing them existing solely in terms of their ability to fulfil their children's needs. In other words, parents have needs other than caring for their child. And opening up a dialogue about those needs, desires and wishes 
is perhaps the first step that we could take. And such a step might just take us in a radically different direction than we would otherwise. So there we go. Now, this is where I need some more music to transition into my next segment. I really want to question and answer section at the end where I respond to questions that practitioners or anybody in social work actually has and I will give a go at trying to answer those questions. And you can contact me on my email, which I've just set up for the podcast, richdevine, D-E-V-I-N-E, socialwork at gmail.com. And I just want to end on some lovely feedback that I've received, because I looked on the Apple podcast site over the weekend and realised that I'd had a couple of comments that I hadn't seen and one person wrote fascinating and accessible podcast which provides important insights into the dilemmas and challenges of safeguarding social work with children and families. I've listened to several I've listened several times to both episode and one and two and taken so much from the wisdom and generosity Richard shared essential listening for all social workers and a valuable learning source for us all. Looking forward to hearing and learning more. Another wrote, I really enjoyed this honest and insightful podcast. Rich's writing and analysis has already been so useful to the profession. This is a fantastic addition and I've no doubt will be a fantastic resource for students and social workers. I know no one who can combine theoretical knowledge with courageous honesty and insight so successfully. And then one more, which just writes, honest and reflective, looking forward to hearing more. And I just wanted to say, because it's not clear to me who wrote those, a massive, massive thank you. They are such generous and lovely and encouraging pieces of feedback. And I just wanted to acknowledge and show appreciation for them. So many thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't already, then please consider subscribing or following or sharing with your colleagues. And please, please leave a comment, positive or negative. It'd be good to have some negative because then if I do read them out on a weekly basis, it will show a degree of balance. It will be a bit cringe if People are really lovely and kind, and I'm just reading that out all the time. I mean, I'm happy to take it, but... um, So, my point is that all feedback is very welcome. And finally, as I mentioned before, if you have any questions, please get in touch. Or, if there's any topics you would like me to explore, or people you'd like me to speak to, then again, please get in touch. 